This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism through the lens of the Scopes Monkey Trial and the life of William Jennings Bryan. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. In August of 2021, I got into an old elevator. uh, In the late 1970s, uh, the county did a major overhaul, installed the elevator, air conditioning, a few other improvements. The voice you're hearing is from Tom Davis. He's the Administrator of Elections for Ray County, Tennessee, and the go-to guy there for historic structures. We're making our way to the top floor of an old red brick building. Well, this is lovely. Wow. The, The courtroom looks very much the way it did in 1925. Major differences are the ceiling being 18 inches lower because... This is the site of one of the most famous trials in American history, the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial. It has hardwood floors and big glass windows. Was this still used as a courtroom today? It was up until March. The county moved into a new justice center. Spectator seats, the bar around the official court area, the lawyer's table are all original. Wow. So this is it. This is where they would have sat. This is where they they did the whole thing. The defense uh, sat to the left, the prosecution to the right. There were reporters inside the bar. People were everywhere they could possibly be to get in. For a history nerd, this was a big deal. Because what happened in this large room echoes through so much of what we're experiencing now our us-and-them mentality, the Bible versus science, truth against myth. Some historians have called this the OJ trial of its time, a public spectacle where the whole country followed along via national broadcast. Yeah, this was the first American trial broadcast live over a national radio network. Everyone wanted to know the verdict of this trial. The state of Tennessee, with the urging of William Jennings Bryan and a group of fundamentalist Christians, passed a law. You could not teach evolution in the schools. Not as truth and not as a theory. Not at all. How did this little town, on its way to being forgotten by society, suddenly explode onto the front pages of national newspapers? Did this debacle over evolution and religion really change that much? Some point to this trial as the temporary death of Christian fundamentalism. Others say that it had very little impact at all. The story sticks with us because it illustrates so much of who we are as evangelical Christians and so much of what we're afraid to become. Where do the lines of science and faith intersect? And where do they diverge? With all due respect to those involved, OJ's case was a murder case. And there have been how many in the United States in the last 95 years, but there has been one Scopes trial. 
You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Tom and I also went downstairs from the courtroom into the basement museum, which back in 2021 had survived a small flood. Thankfully, he was willing to give me a tour while the working men did their thing in the background. Uh, where do you usually start with your tours well, here? We start coming in on the left with an explanation of the Butler Act, the law that said public schools can't teach any theory of human development creation that denies the account found in the Bible. I covered that in the last episode if you want more information. And thankfully, it looks like none of the artifacts were hurt. Right. Yeah, they did move the drugstore table and chairs out of their proper spot because it was getting wet over there. Right. Yeah, oh, so that's from the drugstore. Yeah. Well, and the, the table's pretty small. It seems like for such a big plan, you'd want a larger table. It's about the size of a large pizza. Yeah, very large pizza. Very but... large pizza. <laughs> Just a table. Not that big. But it came from the drugstore that, a hundred years ago, hosted a meeting that kicked off the whole brouhaha that put Dayton on the map. That was owned by the chairman of the school board. The drugstore sold ice cream and drinks, but also stuff you probably wouldn't expect, like textbooks including the one that would become central to this battle over evolution. Dayton is a charming, quintessential small town. A square, statues, its own brewery. But in the 1920s, it seemed like Dayton was on the way out. Actually reducing in size as the old blast furnace had closed. Ray County was a farming community. Strawberries shipped by rail up to the cities in the north. By the way, the voice you hear is the ever-interesting Edward Larson. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his excellent book on the trial and teaches at Pepperdine University. This piece of Tennessee was different than the rest of the state. The whole state is Republican now, but back then, Tennessee, being a Southern state, was predominantly Democratic and therefore pro-Brian. Brian, remember, had been the Democratic nominee for president. That's William Jennings Bryan three-time nominee for president by the Democratic Party. He lost all three times, then became Secretary of State under President Wilson. He'd earned the nickname Mr. Fundamentalist. But East Tennessee, historically, where Dayton is located, that was the Republican end of the, the state. Republican back then meant they were pro-abolition against Jim Crow laws. Ryan was a Democrat. For a long time, THE Democrat. Naturally, Dayton didn't vote for him. The trial, though, was years after Bryan stopped running for office. He turned his attention to other causes, like slowing the spread of social Darwinism. To do that, he and a bunch of other Christian leaders like William Bell Riley and Billy Sunday campaigned to outlaw the teaching of evolution in Tennessee. And again, he was very precise. He didn't care about the evolution of animals or plants. He probably accepted those things to happen. What he cared about was humans. The Bible is very clear that Adam and Eve are specially created by God. So he can go out and convince people that there was a danger in teaching students as true that, that they had been created through a Darwinian process of evolution. 
And so the Tennessee law that he ended up championing, and he went to the Tennessee legislature and helped get it passed, simply says that you can't teach the, the Darwinian theory of human evolution. It doesn't deal with other sorts of evolution. The ACLU published a notice in the state saying that they would be willing to defend any school teacher in the state who wanted to challenge the law. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, you may know, is now almost a cuss word for some evangelicals. In 1925, they put out this advertisement looking for someone to challenge the law. What they needed was an educator willing to teach evolution, get caught, and go to trial. Someone to test the validity of the law in a courtroom. Who would be bold enough, brave enough, or so desperate for attention that they would take on a controversial law in the public eye? Perhaps Dayton? The town was struggling for business at this time because, as I said, the local blast furnace had closed and they were losing population and they, they came up with this idea. An idea for how to boost the notoriety of the town. Let's have a test case here. Let's try this law and see if we can't get people to take notice. It'll spark a media circus, looky-loos, <gasps> folks from all around who want to take part in history and spend their money in local stores and hotels. Imagine the crowds of the soda fountains, the restaurants. This BTW is one way that laws get tested in the United States. An organization wants to test a law, Aha! they find someone willing to break it, and then they take the case to court so they can argue that the law should not exist. I object. Think Rosa Parks, or even Carrie Buck from my eugenics episode. A small group of citizens met in the soda fountain at a table about the size of a large pizza, with the hope of drawing some much-needed attention to Dayton. The only problem is, who were they going to get to do it? The biology teacher, the person you'd expect to teach evolution, was also the principal of the school. They couldn't sacrifice the principal. But okay, what about the young guy, John Scopes? He was the football coach and he was the middle school science teacher. Someone found him playing tennis, called him to the drugstore, and laid out their plan. Would he, John Scopes, be willing to get arrested for teaching evolution? Now, granted, he hadn't, but that was a minor technicality. He hadn't even taught evolution. One of the most famous crime stories in American history, and there wasn't even a crime committed. But the young man certainly fit the bill. Scopes wasn't particularly religious, and he was well-liked and a composed guy. Not a bad defendant. They assured him of his job back. They assured he'd never go to jail. They were very that they could pay his fine if there was one. There wasn't much to lose. Right there in the drugstore, they arrested John Scopes. With all the major players in order, they contacted the ACLU to tell them they had their test case. And so the trial began literally as a publicity stunt. How American can you get? Each of the major players had their own reasons for the battle. Some of them religious, some commercial, some moral, and others to limit the role of government in society. Ryan was always a champion of big government. We saw that throughout his political career. 
He was instrumental in switching the Democrats from wanting a small government to wanting a larger one. When Teddy Roosevelt turned his eyes to progressive reforms like national parks and antitrust laws, Ryan upped the ante. He trusted popular democracy, and he believed and would say that the people ultimately are always right. Brian was a majoritarian. Essentially, he believed that the majority should have the right to make society by their own rules. That's why he backed laws to block the teaching of evolution. If we, the majority of parents in the United States, decide we don't want such and such taught in our schools, shouldn't the schools adjust to our will? Guys like Brian would say that this is just democracy by another name. Citizens exercising the right to shape their society. Majoritarianism sounds like a great idea, so long as you're in the majority. But when the pendulum of society swings in a different direction, the ideas you fought so hard to establish now can be used against you. Maybe you think that teachers should always follow the will of the people. But then what if one lone teacher wants to pray in their classroom and the majority says they can't? Majoritarianism requires that you trust your people will always be in charge. Because he thought, as long as it's controlled by popular votes, government makes us better. So he was a champion of big government where the founders of the ACLU and Clarence Darrow were very suspicious of government because they thought that there could be a tyranny of the majority just as much as there could be a tyranny by a king or a kaiser or, or an emperor. The ACLU was founded in part to protect the minority from the will of the majority. Their initial goal was to protect Quakers and pacifists from being conscripted into fighting during World War I. Brian actually would have agreed with a lot of the ACLU's stances. You know, protecting workers and defending labor, for example. But here, they were pitted against each other with his desire for big government and their hopes to keep that government in check. The ACLU had been battling these laws throughout the country because they thought that teachers should have an academic freedom to teach and students should have an academic freedom to learn whatever ideas are out there. Brian's case may sound pretty narrow-minded, but he was concerned about the spread of social Darwinism. As a post-millennialist, he believed that good governance could make the world a better place and usher in the millennium. He saw social Darwinism as a threat because it gave license to men like John D. Rockefeller to believe that they had the right to treat poor people without respect because rich guys are superior beings. William Jennings Bryan seemed like a natural choice to join the prosecution. Not only was he involved in the law in question, but he was one of the most famous men in the country. Not bad for a publicity stunt. Darrow, on the other hand, was not an easy choice for the defense. The ACLU had not asked Darrow to be involved in the case. In fact, they had already organized another team of lawyers. Darrow was maybe the most famous civil libertarian in the country at the time. Why not get him involved? He was also sort of like a Richard Dawkins of his day. He was a critic of revealed religion in general and literalistic Christianity in particular. And he would go around writing books and debating for agnosticism or even atheism. Darrow had in mind of using the trial not only to promote 
academic freedom, but really to debunk Christianity, which, of course, the ECLU didn't want to get anywhere near that third rail. They wanted to make the case for the right of teachers. Bringing Darrow on would change the narrative. He knew the ACLU would never want him there. He went straight to John Scopes. Scopes liked Darrow. So what could the ACLU do? Their defendant wanted to bring the big guns. Of course Scopes did. Getting Darrow involved would mean even more publicity to challenge the law he disagreed with and bring tourism to Dayton. Basically, they pull their people from the trial and the leaders of the ACLU don't even go down and attend. And they basically turn it over to Clarence Darrow to, to run because they're sort of forced out. The plan was to find the best experts possible to prove the existence of evolution and to make sure the whole country was paying attention. To do that, they had to get Scopes out in the public. Scopes never went to jail. Indeed, after the trial was launched and it became front page news, he went on a publicity tour around America. He went to Chicago, he went to New York, he spoke at the American Museum of Natural History, he went to Washington, D.C. He went on a publicity tour around the country. And the ACLU put together an advisory board that included the presidents of Harvard, University of Michigan, University of uh, Stanford University, University of California, Berkeley. And they pulled together this star-studded expert list of expert witnesses, all Christian, mind you, from the top universities around America, like Princeton and Chicago and Vanderbilt, to come down and testify. This was not some sort of scene where you had this or a school teacher looking for a lawyer, as it appears in Inherit the Wind. The Broadway play turned movie that presented a fictionalized version of the trial. Rather, the lawyers found him. The town was about to get more than it bargained for. Remember, they were hoping for some publicity and to frame this as a test case. Where the two sides would come together and de debate the merits of this law without Scopes's neck being on the line. What happened was that America loves a story. And the best story is that there's this benighted hill town in the benighted South, enraged by fundamentalism, that arrests one of their own teachers. That's just too good a story to pass up because America likes conflict. Which is funny because so much of the story told to the public and in the later play Inherit the Wind was just not true. Dayton was not a backwater. It had one of the largest courtrooms in the state and a train line. It was Republican, which in those days meant it was liberal. The town wasn't inflamed by fundamentalism. Quite the opposite. The trial was engineered by liberals who wanted to test the law. Scopes wasn't arrested in the school or tossed in jail. He went on a publicity tour. But those nuances were too subtle for the media to grasp. What they wanted was not Dayton, but maybe the town from Dirty Dancing. And it was in the popular imagination that fundamentalism was a Southern ideology, even though it started and found its supporters in the North. Modernism hadn't taken hold in the South, so there was no reason for fundamentalism to blossom. Fundamentalism was largely a northern phenomenon. With the world on alert, Dayton would soon blossom into a circus. And the trial of the century was about to begin. 
We'll continue our story after this message. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Let's go back to the courthouse in Ray County, Tennessee. We have a few artifacts, like the typewriter that the court reporter used to type the transcript. Then we have some sheet music. Most people don't associate music with trials. But there were about 15 or 20 songs written about the Scopes trial. Everything from the very serious, the ballad of William Jennings Bryan talks about his coming to town to defend the anti-evolution statute, to Darwin's monkey trot. People wrote musical tributes to these men and this moment. The small group of men meeting in that drugstore could not have anticipated what their planned test trial would become, a part of national lore and history books, but also a sort of a circus. On the tour, Tom pointed to a black and white picture. Yeah, there's a photo of a monkey up here on the wall. H.L. Mencken, probably the most famous journalist of the day, called this the monkey trial. So somebody decided if this is going to be the monkey trial, we got to have a monkey. Somebody brought Joe Mindy, who was a movie star chimpanzee, and you know he's dressed in a three-piece suit and carrying a golf club, ready to go hit the links, I guess. <laughs> but he, he performed for children in the town. And he, he was our, our main monkey. We're talking about the middle of the 1920s, which were a celebrity era. And we're talking about the jazz age. Think The Great Gatsby. Prohibition, speakeasies, the ubiquity of the automobile, airline travel, electronic media like radio. So much of this was really new, and the economy was booming. They thought that thousands of people would descend on the town to watch the trial. Even toying with the idea of holding court in the baseball stadium so more people could watch. They expected thousands of people to come to Dayton for this. Locals rented out their homes, and the press arrived on the train. The courtroom fit a lot of people, but there wasn't enough space for everyone. So they ran speakers outside so that people could listen on the courthouse lawn. H.L. Mencken, the famous journalist, had suspected the town to be backwards, but found it, at least initially, warm and friendly. The carnival atmosphere also teased out negative stereotypes of the North and the South. This was a day when you did have lynching in the South, when you did have um, segregation in the South. Northerners were not moving to the South. It was before air conditioning, it was before the development of the 
interstate highway system or any of that. People were leaving the countryside to go to the cities. So there was an element of seeing rural areas as backwaters. Let's go to Dayton and watch the Hicks fight against science. That kind of thing. Even though the reality doesn't match the legend, you could easily play on the rural, urban, and emphasizing that, the anti-evolution movement was squarely rooted in the cities. This wasn't truly a north-south urban rural, but if you cast it that way from a propaganda point of view, making it north-south rural urban worked. And people like H.L. Mencken played that card. Brian arrived at the train station to fanfare, cheers, and waving handkerchiefs three days before the main event. His plan was to make speeches and address the people. He'd fallen out of favor after resigning from Wilson's cabinet and failing to denounce the KKK in front of the Democratic National Convention. Though he was still making good money doing his public speaking and regularly drew large crowds at his Florida Bible study, he wasn't what he'd once been. This may have felt like a step back into the national spotlight. The New York defense lawyers, when they pulled into the station, were greeted by almost nobody. One of the men noticed young fella taking their bags. What are you doing with those suitcases? Thinking his luggage was being stolen. One of the locals had to tell him, That's all right, Doc. That's only scopes. The New Yorkers didn't recognize their own defendant even as he helped them with their bags. When Darrow arrived, he too was met by only a small group. Nothing like the crowds drawn to Brian. The defendants had an uphill battle to wage. The night before the trial began, Judge Ralston attended a prayer meeting where he said, I am much interested that the unerring hand of him who was the author of all truth and justice should direct every official act of mine. Ralston himself was a man of prayer and invited it into his courtroom, even in a trial about the veracity of the Bible. Darrow hoped to strike a blow against Christianity. When the first prayer was given in court, the prayer was really aimed against his client. Darrow had spent years of his career fighting so-called blue laws, religiously inspired laws that kept people from doing things like buying alcohol on Sunday. Prayer in court really got under his skin. Your Honor, I want to make an objection before the jury comes in. What is it, Mr. Darrow? I object to prayer. And I object to the jury being present when the court rules on the objection. Because he saw the trial as one between science and religion. Prayer at the start of the day might constitute bias on the part of the court. In the end, what they did is they compromised and had sort of neutral prayers given. He lodged another objection. I got to see what Darrow was complaining about while at the Ray County Museum. When I see there's a photo of a man standing in front of a, a sign that says, Read your Bible. It's very similar to the one that's outside. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, okay, that man is John Scopes. The read your Bible sign, or a read your Bible sign, caused a little bit of controversy during the trial. Darrow took offense at a sign that had been posted on the courthouse wall to encourage people to read your Bible. They argued about that for a while. Brian finally stood up and said, Your Honor, I think the sign ought to come down. We don't want to offend our brothers during the trial. And, and there still is today, I guess. Well, yeah, we haven't taken it down from our festival, our oh. reenactment yet. Um, 
maintenance has been busy. <laughs> As you can imagine, because of the flooding. Some of the prosecutors were upset at Darrow's request to take the banner down. Brian calmed them. If leaving that up there during the trial makes our brother to offend, I would take it down during the trial. First, the squabble over prayer, then the banner. But the central battle in the trial was the question of whether or not to allow expert testimony to be heard by the jury. Both sides had said they were going to bring in expert witnesses to debate the merits of the statue. That was one reason Darrow paraded scopes around the Northeast, to find experts who would testify to the legitimacy of teaching evolution in the classroom. Brian instead and the, the prosecution moved to exclude all expert witness, saying it's irrelevant because the only thing relevant is whether scopes taught evolution. The ACLU was not going to object to that because they wanted this law judged. If Scopes was convicted, they could then appeal to the state Supreme Court and then ultimately to the United States Supreme Court to try to get the law struck down as unconstitutional. That was their goal. They didn't let Scopes take the stand because he would have had to admit that he hadn't taught evolution. And he actually coached his students to say that he had taught evolution. In other words, the ACLU wanted Scopes to lose. That's the only way that the case could climb its way to the higher courts where the law could be removed. Yet Darrow and the defense fought to keep the expert witnesses in the trial. Day after day, this was the big concern. All the while, the jury sat out of the proceedings as the lawyers haggled over what they could and could not hear. There were no empty seats. And I can tell you from personal experience, it gets really hot and muggy in Dayton. The trial went on for over a week, but what they did is they debated whether you could admit witnesses, they debated whether the law was constitutional, so the jury was excused for all of those portions and what really frustrated him. They were prohibited from going in the various other venues and listening to it over the loudspeaker because they weren't supposed to hear that. While Scopes hadn't taught evolution, the students in the school used a book called Civic Biology that clearly did. A textbook that was sold in the very drugstore where the trial began, and one that was approved by the state of Tennessee's textbook board. It's the one that students were asked if they used in class. The book didn't stop at evolution, but tied evolution to eugenics. I got a chance to see a copy of it myself when I visited Bryan College in Dayton. Well, this looks like it actually belonged to a student because uh, all of their periods are listed in the back of the mm -hmm. book. It says first period was biology, second period physical education, where I met Kevin Woodruff. I am the research literacy librarian at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. He and I spent almost two hours talking about the trial and looking through the archives at the Bryan College Library. The machine that manages the temperature in the archives was particularly loud that day. It's a green book with a sort of worn, yellowed, but glossy pages. Yeah. Mr. Woodruff read some of it for me. When people marry, there are certain things that the individual as well as the race should demand. Okay, sounds very... Eugenics-y? Yeah. Epilepsy and feeble-mindedness are handicaps, which is not unfair, but criminal to hand down to posterity, so. Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> that's well, it's hard to believe, but that's what was being taught. Right, that's the textbook. Mm-hmm. That's from the section on eugenics. 
clearly stating it is immoral for epileptics and those with mental issues to reproduce. William Jennings Bryan's dystopian scenario printed in schoolbook form. Rather than explore the literal advocacy of eugenics, it was never mentioned. Instead, this epic showdown of the ages, one that Bryan described in advance as a battle royal, kind of became a royal dud as far as the media was concerned. If you narrow the case down to did Scopes teach evolution, then there's really not much of a case. That's why the actual trial, that is when the jury's involved, took only two hours. There wasn't much, much, to, much to debate. They removed all of the sensational stuff. Without the experts giving testimony, this was just a simple case establishing if a small-town teacher taught evolution, not something that sells newspapers. Instead, the defense admitted that their client broke the law. Darrow literally tells the jury, says, you have no choice, you're going to have to convict my defendant. What kind of battle is that? The defense attorney told the jury to convict. Telegraphs had transmitted 20,000 words a day. Special lines were strung. People were listening all over the country. Friday, the evening before closing arguments were scheduled, reporters started leaving, thinking there was nothing to see, no battle royal. In fact, some of the prosecutors even went swimming with scopes during a recess midweek. Where was the throwdown? Only the closing arguments remained. Darrow knew that William Jennings Bryan had prepared a doozy. Bryan was one of the best orators of his time. Darrow did not want Bryan to give his grand address, to influence the minds of the country. What he did was hatch a plan, to use the legal system to keep Bryan from giving his prepared closing statement. But simply preventing his opponent from speaking wasn't enough. He wanted to crush religion. The best way to do that wasn't by silencing Brian, but by calling him to the stand. The resulting testimony would eclipse all the rest of Brian's legacy in the eyes of many. It became the thing he's most known for today. That moment when the accused was ignored and the prosecutor was on trial. What happened next came to define the career of William Jennings Bryan and completely shaped the way we see fundamentalism today. We'll continue our story in the next episode. Special thanks to Edward Larson. His Pulitzer Prize winning book about the trial is Summer for the Gods. Thanks also to Kevin Woodruff of Bryan College and Tom Davis in Ray County, Tennessee was the definition of a good sport. He was the only one at the elections office the day I came in and shut down the place just to give me a tour. If you're anywhere near Dayton, Tennessee, it's worth a detour to see the courtroom. I even got to sit in the judge's chair. I'll have pictures for you on the website and on social media. Truce is a listener-supported show. My goal is to do this show full-time, which means more episodes for you, fewer breaks, and restored sanity for me. If you'd like to be a part of telling the world that Christian media can be both informative and excellent, visit trucepodcast.com donate. Subscribe to the podcast so you get every new episode as it's released. And a very special thanks to all the people who loan their voices to me for this episode including my brother Nick Starin, my friend B.T. Stevenson, Marcus Watson of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast, 
and Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rut podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll have the second part of this episode out in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.